Welcome to the Heart Soul Wisdom Podcast, a journey of self-discovery and transformation. Moira Sutton and her amazing guests share real-life stories, tools, and strategies to inspire and empower you to create and live your best life. Come along on the journey and finally blast through any fears, obstacles, and challenges that have held you back in the past so you can live your life with the joy, passion, and happiness that you desire. Now, here's your host, Create the Life You Love Empowerment Life Coach, Moira Sutton. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 55, Becoming an Unstoppable Force for Good, with founder and CEO of Heart Mind Institute, mindset and mindfulness teacher, Dr. Fleet Mall. Fleet is a meditation teacher, social entrepreneur, executive coach, and global changemaker. He leads transformational courses and programs and a community of practice focused on empowering you to create possibility abundance, and authentic relationships in your life. Fleet has been practicing mindfulness awareness for five decades, training in the Tibetan, Zen, and Vip Asana Buddhist traditions. He is a fully empowered senior Dharma teacher in both the Zen and Tibetan Buddhist meditation traditions. While serving 14 years in a federal prison on drug charges, Fleet co-founded the first inside prison hospice program anywhere in the world. He launched two national movements, the prison hospice through the National Prison Hospice Association and the Prison Dharma Mindfulness Movement through the Prison Dharma Network and Prison Mindfulness Institute. He has trained correctional and law enforcement officers and other public safety professionals, as well as treatment providers, trauma counselors, and prison volunteers all around the world. His mission is to uplift lives and help people transform challenges and suffering into opportunities for positive change. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Fleet Mall. Welcome, Fleet. Fleet, I would love you to start with you sharing your personal journey and how you ended up standing before a judge and the conviction for smuggling cocaine from South America to the United States. How did that, how did that unfold? How did you get yourself into that position? Well, that's a pretty long story, but I'll try <laughs> to be, I'll try to be very succinct about it, Mara. So um, yeah, you know, I'm uh, a baby boomer. I came of age in the, in the 1960s and, uh, and uh, Graduated from high school in 1968, an incredibly tumultuous year in U.S. history with all the assassinations and the Kent State killings and just so, so, so many terrible things going on. And there was just so much political upheaval. And, and, uh, um, you know, I, I, by that, at that point, I had just become so alienated from my own culture. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a good, uh, I grew up in the Midwest in a good Roman Catholic family with good values, but we had alcoholism in the family and that created some real psychic splitting for me. You know, I had a, a wonderful mother who periodically drank and then, you know, turned into, uh, you know, a, a very scary rageaholic. And so it was that kind of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde situation. And 
and it was never dealt with in the family. You know, it, it would occur, and then the next morning there'd be mom making breakfast again, and nobody would ever talk about it. And uh, so, uh, and then you know, coming up, uh, coming of age through the civil rights era, and then through uh, you know, from 1965 through 1968, there were there were uh, you know tremendous uh, racial unrest, and uh, you know what some people may have called protests or or uprisings and others would call riots and so forth. But it was happening where I grew up as well as uh, in other cities around the country. And I actually happened to be on on family vacation um, uh, out in uh, California to visit Disneyland and go to the beach and so forth in the middle of the Watts riots and driving back and forth on the highway uh, to Anaheim. We'd drive right over the Watts area and seeing it all ablaze below and then you know, seeing all the craziness on TV at night about it when we were back in the little motel we were in. And and um, to all those influences, uh, I mean, even when John Kennedy was assassinated, I was in high school, maybe sixth or seventh grade. And I just remember I really kind of lost faith in everything right then. I just didn't believe what I was being told anymore. Mm. And uh, so by the time I graduated from high school, I was a kind of a classic angry young man, very alienated, big hole in my gut, you know, tr- you know, looking to fill that with anything I could. And and I just went headlong into the counterculture of that era. Uh, in fact, already in 1966, I'd already been experimenting with LSD and other things. And and um, so I went off to a big state university, but really majored in drug, sex and rock and roll. It was really kind of a waste of a tremendous opportunity for education and uh, things just got really confusing. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, like a lot of people of my generation, we just kind of we so rejected the the culture and the worldview of our parents, the World War II Depression era generation, that we just kind of rejected the whole thing and threw out the rule book. So of course we were making a big mess out of everything. But I just knew I wasn't going to go back to that mindset and worldview, and so I just kept pushing forward and you know, made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I'd also always been a spiritual seeker. I don't know why, whether that comes from past lives or what have you, if, if there are, if there is such a thing, but I had always had that, that kind of bent. And, uh, back early on in my life, my, my, my family thought maybe I was going to end up being a priest or something. Um, actually I, years later, I ended up being a, ordained as a Zen priest. So I guess they were right. But, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so, uh, at one point I, just, I, I was just done with being in the U.S. when Richard Nixon was reelected. I, I, I just kind of had to leave. And I was also just looking for something real. You know, I remember my early childhood feeling very plugged in to reality. Things were vivid, real, magical. And then sometime around the time I started school, which could have had to do with starting school, could have had to do with my mother's alcoholism. But but everything just went from vivid and real and magical to gray tones. You know, I completely lost that sense of connection. And, and I never made peace with that. I, I wanted it back. And of course, you know, found myself chasing it through uh, all kinds of experiences, you know, drugs and sex and alcohol and all the rest of it. And of course, those things did kind of plug into something, but it had a kind of a mirage-like quality or even the sense there was something genuine there. There was still a lot of baggage, especially if you had a big hole in your gut and, you know, kind of an addictive propensity. Um so at any rate, and that whole world of the drug scene or the counterculture drug scene went from the heyday of the, you know, love and light psychedelic era and into getting pretty dark, really. And I ended up doing hard drugs. I became an IV drug user. And so I just wanted to escape all that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I took off with a friend to start traveling as a backpacker in Latin America. 
had all kinds of amazing experiences and really got away from the drugs for the most part for a while. And, uh, you know, lived on a sailboat for almost a year in the, in the, uh, Western Caribbean, uh, off the coast of Belize. And, uh, and then sold that and, uh, you know, a little native fishing sloop that we kind of bought and rebuilt and then sold after after we finished our journey and continued down through Central America and on the way to South America. And, and uh, always just, you know, looking to plug into something real and, and fascinated with the indigenous cultures and the archaeology of all the ruined sites that we would always visit everywhere we could. And um, finally ended up in Peru. And I had already had this, I always had this idea of getting to Peru that I'd find something real and magical there. And it actually did. There was this kind of environmental magic there that, you know, you'd wake up every morning completely sober, almost feeling like you, you know, consumed some kind of plant medicine or psychedelic substance or something, because it was just so powerful and real and magical. And, and uh, but unfortunately, the first time I, I left, I ran out of money. I went back to the States to work and earn some money. I, when I got back, I realized I had not brought that with me. So it was environmental. Right. And, mm. and, uh, but, you know, eventually I fell into small time, uh, drug smuggling just to continue to live outside the system. And, uh, and I, I justified that with all this us versus them thinking I was caught up in, you know, seeing the world is completely hypocritical. And, and, you know, I felt like myself and others like me were actually more honest than the larger world. And, um, and even if there is some truth to that, my response certainly wasn't a creative one, uh, all that there would have been much more creative ways I could have re responded to the hypocrisies and, injustices of the times. Uh, but at any rate, I justified all that and uh, and uh, kind of uh, lived that lifestyle. But, uh, you know, I continued, uh, you know, seeking a spiritual path and uh, kind of I'd recognized really way back in high school that I was a Buddhist. The first time I read some Buddhist writings in a comparative religion class in a Jesuit high school I went to, uh, that's the first thing that ever really deeply resonated with me. And I continue to read different things. And I grew up in, in the Midwest. There wasn't a lot going on. But, uh, you know, I pursued my reading. And and then in South America, I started meeting travel travelers who were more interested in such things. And I kind of zeroed in on the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. There were only four or five books that have been translated. I mean, there's probably there's hundreds, if not thousands now. Um, and uh, so I was kind of doing that on my own, living way up in the mountains of Peru and uh, working a little farm and trying to learn to meditate on my own. And eventually I heard about the founding of Naropa University, then Naropa Institute, by the Tibetan Buddhist meditation master, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And, and there was an article, some, some travelers showed up at my place way up in the mountains with a copy of Rolling Stone magazine from the fall of 1974 with a big feature story about that inaugural summer session. They did two summer sessions uh, at Ben Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, and they expected a couple hundred people for each session. And they got like 1,500 people each session. It was a renowned spiritual happening. It was kind of the Woodstock of spirituality. Mm. All kind of legendary figures. Ramdas was there teaching along with mm. from Shea, uh, Buckminster Fuller, William Burroughs, Allen wow. Ginsberg, Ann Waldman, all these avant-garde poets and and dancers and, and philosophers. It was quite a happening. But anyway, what, what attracted me was not so much all that. It was Trunk Rimcha. I just saw him, saw his name. And I just zeroed in. I knew I had to go there. So I found a way to get up there the next year and check out this school and and uh, uh, looked at their programs, decided I wanted to do what was called a master's degree in Buddhist and Western psychology. Not that I so much wanted to become a psychologist, but it had the most emphasis on meditation practice. And that's what I was looking for. So it took me another year or two, my uh, my 
I, I married a Peruvian woman and we came up to the States and my son was born in Colorado, but he had a heart condition initially, which thank, uh, thankfully he was resolved. But, but, you know, so it took me a while and, and I finally enrolled in, uh, um, at, at that school uh, and in that master's program and a profound three-year clinical training program, uh, really training us to work with people experiencing severe mental uh, disorders, schizophrenia and the like. And it was, it was deeply grounded in both Western psychology and Buddhist psychology. Today, the program is still ex existing and it's called now a master's in contemplative psychotherapy. At any rate, uh, so, you know, I put myself through school with, with uh, my ill-gotten gains from, from smuggling and I would disappear once or twice a year and do that. Uh, I continued to get more deeply involved in the Buddhist path, met my teacher, and, and I really, you know, spent 10 years training deeply in that, in that path, but living this split life where I would spend about half the year either disappearing to do a, a once or twice a year smuggling run and then kind of being this crazy lifestyle while the drugs were around and I was, you know, getting rid of it. Um, and then the other half of the year, traveling with my teacher, being in retreats and really intensely and sincerely exploring this uh, deep Buddhist practice path. And, uh, and I, you know, of course, I was experiencing a lot of cognitive dissonance around these things. I knew that I had to get out of the crazy part of my life. But, you know, I self-medicated around that cognitive dissonance. And, you know, before I managed to extricate myself from it, it caught up with me. I, I eventually quit, but others continued. And, and they got uh, caught up with the law and decided to invite me to the party, so mm -hmm. to speak. So mm -hmm. I was indicted. And, uh, you know, I, I actually asked my teacher, what should I do? I said, you know, should I, is this something, you know, this was the Reagan era, you know, drug laws, the Nixon and Reagan drug laws and the whole war on drugs. And is this something I should just escape from? Or is this my own situation I need to deal with? Or should I stay? Should I go? And, uh, you know, he said, that I needed to stay and I needed to face it. And, and if I was on the run, I couldn't really continue my path. And uh, as a student, but even if I went to prison, they were threatening to send me to prison for 30 years. He said, even if you're in prison for 30 years, you can continue your path. And uh, that's the first time I took anybody's advice and I never uh, have regretted it. So I turned myself in. I was terrified of going to prison, but I turned myself in and, and I was supposed to get out of bail, but they never gave me bail. So then I was just in and I was in for a long time. And, I went through trial and sentencing uh, seven months in a you know, hellhole of a county jail going through trial and sentencing. And uh, the night before my sentencing, uh, I was facing, uh, I've been convicted of this so-called kingpin statute, which is the only reason I went to trial is because I didn't feel I was guilty of that. Uh, I would have pled guilty to smuggling and, and the other attendant charges. But uh, at any rate, you know, a lot of people you know, they draw a circle and, and whoever doesn't testify, you become the kingpin and everybody else testifies. And that's kind of the way it works. So and I, I didn't I was never going to cooperate or testify against anyone, not because I was kind of some stand up guy, but just because my Buddhist values. I mean, somebody else is going to do my time. Somebody else's family is going to suffer. So I can be it just didn't sit with me. So I was just never going to go there. So at any rate, um, uh, I was uh, facing potential sentence of life in prison and uh uh, I was sentenced to 30 years with no parole that next day. And I, the paper, the next, the paper that next day said I'd be 60, I was 35 then said I'd be 65 before I have any chance of release. And, uh, and that's what I thought the deal was. And, uh, in fact, I, it wasn't until I got to federal prison, was there for several months before I figured out how the good time worked and everything. And I realized that fortunately I was sentenced prior to 1987, uh, that, uh, there was a lot of good time. And if I stayed out of trouble with that long of a sentence, 
I would serve about 18 and a half years on 30 if I stayed out of trouble. If you get in trouble, they start taking it away in chunks and you can do all your time. Um, uh, eventually, my appeal went through the courts, took about three years, and they knocked off one count of this aggregate sentence of five counts. And my sentence got reduced from 30 to 25. And then I know I knew I'd serve 14 and a half years, which still felt like forever. Uh, but anyway, that's kind of how I ended up there. And, uh, um, you know, the, the, the journey I went through in prison is kind of a whole nother story. Mm-hmm. But that's where my radical responsibility model really evolved was the way I dealt with being in prison. Wow. Quite the story. <laughs> you, you made this decision right around that time when with your sentencing, you know, that you were deep in your heart, no matter what your sentence was, this sentence of 30 years, you would never give up on your life or your son or yourself. How did you come to that, that big aha, you know, decision? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a powerful moment. And I'm still grateful for that moment. Uh, obviously, it was that that night when I was awaiting sentencing, they had me in a different county jail. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was tried in a federal court in a major Midwestern city. And uh, most of the time they had me in a county jail about 60 miles south, which kept my lawyer from ever coming down there. And uh, but this time I was in a county jail closer to the courts and and they had me in an isolation cell under. I guess they that maybe like under suicide watch or something. I wasn't suicidal at all. I was highly anxious, but I wasn't suicidal at all. But anyway, all these lights, I couldn't sleep, but I don't think I could have slept anyway. And um, so shortly before dawn, I, I just felt so claustrophobic in that cell. And there was one small window up high. And uh, so I, I just stood up on the, I got up top of the kind of built-in stainless steel toilet sink. I climbed up there and I could just barely peer out that window and I could see the night sky with the stars. And I'm looking out at the night sky and the stars and something just came over, this wave of something kind of came over me. And, and I got down and I sat on the side of my bunk and I just felt this tremendous certainty that uh, I would not give up. As you said, I would not give up on on myself, on my son, on my life at all. And and uh, I, I felt that with absolute clarity. And at the same time, I was still, you know, incredibly anxious about what I was going to face later that day at sentencing. Uh, but that is when that happened. Mm-hmm. So that was a very spiritual moment that you had, would you say? It was. I'd say mm-hmm. it was actually a very spiritual moment. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the Something gift of- arose up from the depth of my being that that gave me that kind of certainty and confidence. In the study that you have, like the Tibetan Buddhists and, you know, your masters at the university, just all that behind you, that that develops a big part of who you are. It's, it's almost like, you know, over here's fleet and there's this other fleet. Like you said, there's this, you know, breaking of the whole, but, and now you've had this opportunity to come back to a whole. With that being said, you, you literally developed unshakable confidence when you were in jail. And how did you develop that? How did, you know, and since your release, you have this unshakable confidence in yourself, in your life, because there's a lot of people that aren't confident in themselves or, you know, we're going to get into that where they, they're fearful or they blame themselves or they have you know, negativity or justification, all those things. But you develop this unshakable confidence. How did you develop that? Again, is this because of your faith? Well, I think there's there's two parts to it. Um, okay. the The most important part, you could say, has to do with faith. Uh, 
uh, or kind of an experiential faith, but the meditation practices of the Buddhist tradition and particularly of the tradition I was practicing in allow one to, over time, through practice, drop beneath all the noise into the very depth of one's being uh, and where one is even no longer really witnessing that as if you could observe yourself, but one is just in that, one is just being in that very depth of being. And when you have these experiences, it becomes undeniable that, that you experience yourself as not broken, that you don't need fixing, you're not missing anything. You experience the, the clear truth of your own innate goodness, innate wholeness, and so forth. And that's a profound experience. And it and and the more you have access to that, it, it creates this unconditional confidence from which you can live your life because it's not based on anything, right? Now, the other types of confidence that we develop in life, which are also very important, uh, the kind of relative confidence and, and generally sort of the confidence in the things we can do, the things we're good at, right? And, you know, as we grow up as a, as a child and go through school, you know, some of us are good at sports, some of us are good at, you know, language, some of us are very social and good at making friends, uh, some of us may be good at math or whatever. And, and, you know, we tend to build our confidence around the things we're good at. And as we go further in life and develop professional skills and our work and so forth, uh, you know, we build our confidence around those things, but all of those things can be undermined, right? Through an accident or an injury or an illness or, you know, the economy, you know, the bottom falling out or all kinds of things can happen that can undermine a relationship, a job, a career, an ability, a skill. And uh, then where are we, right? And mm -hmm. so there's nothing wrong with building those kind of relative confidences. They're very important. But if underneath that, the, the, if the whole thing is kind of built on quicksand because we haven't really dropped into the depth of our being and resolved that because, you know, basically our self-structure, we begin building it from, you know, we start separating from the mother. You know, we're in this kind of unitary state with the mother or surrogate parent early on. And then, you know, around four, five, six months, we're beginning to separate, individuate, and we have to develop some kind of psychological self, some self-structure with which to navigate the world. And so we start building that out of just whatever's around. And, and you know, if we have a, a fairly stable, loving uh, childhood, we develop a fairly functional, stable sense of self. And if we have a childhood that's less so, we have a less stable functioning self. And But regardless of how stable or high functioning we may be, you know, it's, it's still essentially fear-based because what we're experiencing as an infant is, is the absolute actual groundlessness of life, of reality as it is, which is completely impermanent and groundless. And so we we actually developed this self-structure to ward that off because we're not prepared at that age to experience that kind of groundlessness. And even as an adult, uh, you know, most of the spiritual practice, the inner spiritual practices are about reopening to that groundlessness, but we do it in a very graduated way with a lot of support and practice. But we can't do that when we're when we're infants, obviously, or or when we're children. So, so our our self structures, no matter how well developed and how high functioning, are essentially um, essentially fear based. Mm -hmm. And and so um, you know we've never really gone down there and dealt with the depth of that being that that underlying beingness for us. We we sense it or intuitively sense that it's just kind of groundlessness, emptiness, or annihilation, right? And and it's terrifying, right? So we don't go there. And at some point, and until we do go there, we're really building the, the castle or the artifice of our life uh, on quicksand because we've never dealt with that. 
But when you go down there and make a relationship with the depth of being, and you realize that though it is groundless and fluid and empty of any individual self-structures, uh, it's actually profound and stable and nurturing. And, you know, it's like, um, you know, I, one good analogy, I think, is, you know, if we didn't know how to swim, we're let's say we're at a pool party and somebody pushes us in the deep end of the pool, we're going to probably panic and freak out. Uh, but if we know how to swim well, we might be irritated that somebody pushed us in the pool, but we'll start splashing around, probably start laughing sooner or later because we're comfortable in the water. So we can develop that same comfort in the depth of our being through practice. And that's what gives us that ultimately gives us that unshakable confidence. Mm. Now, the other part of that for me in prison was, you know, I had kind of, uh, I grew up, um, my family had a family business and, you know, they had always kind of presented, you know, we're different from other people were owners, small business owners, you know, and this is the way, and you know, that whole big corporate world out there is rootless and groundless and, you know, and, and, you know, follow this way. And, you know, I, I definitely was not going to follow that. I'd already kind of turned away for, for so many different reasons. Not that my family weren't good people. It just wasn't my life. And, 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 but I was, but I kind of bought into that idea that the bigger world out there, the corporate world and the professional worlds was kind of scary. And, and, um, so I, I think, I guess I doubted my own abilities. And actually the first thing I, I realized I was really good at was drug smuggling. I was very good at it. Uh, I actually never directly got caught. Other people, you know, got caught when I quit and decided to invite me along, but I guess that's still getting caught in the long run. But at any rate, I was good at it, you know, and I, it gave me a certain confidence. It was something I was good at. Well, in prison, you know, um, I, I was a school teacher. That was my day job. I found out I was a really good teacher. Um, you know, I was a meditation teacher. I was, I was teaching meditation. I was very good and proficient at that. Uh, this was a maximum security federal prison hospital. And we started the first, another inmate myself helped start the first hospice program in a prison anywhere in the world in the heights of the AIDS epidemic. And uh, I, we got outside people in to train us. And then I, I managed that training program, did a lot of the training myself and, you know, and outside people coming in would start to recognize me as a peer, as a, as even though I was a prisoner, they recognized that I had the same kind of professional abilities they did. And uh, I was constantly studying. I, I was working on my doctorate. And, you know, by the time I came out of prison, I, I, you know, felt like a realized professional. I had tremendous confidence in my professional abilities. And, uh, but I was built now on this on this uh, deeper foundation of unconditional confidence. So that was kind of an ideal situation, which allowed me, and I knew I was gonna be almost 50 when I got out. I mean, once I figured the whole thing out and after my appeal and everything that I would serve 14 and a half years. And, you know, I also, there was a big judgment from against me from the IRS of $300,000. So I was gonna get out with a with a serious criminal record and a big debt at, at 50 years old. I said, that's not an easy way to start your life. So. Uh, I knew I had to really work hard to train myself and prepare. Fortunately, that 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 tax debt was dismissed because they never followed through on it. And there's laws where, you know, uh, uh, I can't remember what they call it when, uh, you know, when something after seven years, it, it kind of goes away or something because they never followed through on it. So that was a blessing when that, that was happened. a blessing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, my I had a brother-in-law who was a lawyer, helped me figure that out. It's just I was getting out. Um, but at any rate, still, I was 50 years old and serious criminal record. And uh, but, you know, I've had nothing but opportunity ever since I got out, which is now 23 years ago. And, um, uh, you know, it's been I've been traveling the world before COVID-19. I was traveling all over the world, continually teaching and leading seminars and 
you know, I, I was able to finish my PhD eventually and publish the book. And, you know, I've just had nothing but opportunity. And it, but their training ground, really, that I was it was like I was in a 14 and a half year, uh, you know, advanced uh, educational situation, like my my doctoral and postdoc uh, kind of training all in one. Wow. You've covered a lot of things I want to dive into. I'm not sure where I want to go with it because I still have lots of areas here. Let's let's go to this witnessing versus sensing and observing versus feeling in the mindfulness practice, the exercises that you share in your book. What what's what's the difference with that? When we're witnessing something, um, they talk about when we observe something, how things distort, like they're not exactly what we're seeing. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's true. Although, you know, observing and being able to witness is a very, very valid part of the practice and path. That's where we begin. Uh, to use another analogy, you know, before we develop some kind of self-awareness practice, uh, some kind of mindfulness and awareness practice, it's sort of like we're in this river of sensate experience without a lot of awareness. You know, we all have some or we couldn't function, but we don't have a lot. We're just kind of in our experience. And it's sort of like that that age old question, you know, are fish aware of the water because the water is so ubiquitous in their in their life, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like it's kind of like ourselves, and and uh, and then you know when we start to kind of develop some kind of awareness practice, and we we step back and can kind of witness our own experience, our own thoughts, emotions, experiences, our sense perceptions. It's kind of like we climb out of the river and sit on the bank of the river. And then we can observe the river and we see all the, you know, the hydrodynamics and the whirlpools and eddies and currents, maybe debris floating by or maybe even small boats. You know, we're able to sit on the bank of the river and observe it. So that's kind of the beginning stage of mindfulness and awareness practice where we're, we're developing this capacity to observe or the, the witness or what's sometimes called the watcher. Very important development because from that witness mind, we can choose how we're going to respond to life. So it's really the beginning of our psychological freedom. So very important development, but it still mm-hmm. has this sense of separation. So it, as our practice can mature, and that's why I teach a very deeply embodied approach to mindfulness awareness meditation that makes all of this much easier because by developing a deep physicality, like we're really tuned into and our body mind synchronized around the deeply felt physical presence of the body, that helps us shift from you know neural networks that support a very discursive, distracted mind to neural networks that support attention stabilization, which then gives us access to profound states of awareness. And so we're learning to kind of self-regulate ourselves in that way through posture and the way we're relating our attention and, uh, and, and you know, just relating with our breath. We're not manipulating the breath in basic meditation, but still we're, we're kind of being with the breath. And initially, you know, it is having that watcher, that witness, but eventually especially if we have that stable foundation of attention stabilization by synchronizing body and mind with deeply embodied approach to meditation, then we're able to relax that witness, to relax that observer. Let's take the breath, for example. Let's say we're kind of observing the breath flowing in and out, right? We we can feel the belly rising and falling. Maybe we feel the passage of air to nostrils or parted lips. We feel the chest rising and falling. So we're observing all that. And, and we're, I, I know I'm breathing in. I know I'm breathing out. I can feel it, but I'm also kind of observing it. And there's a, still a sense of a watcher, a separate some someone who's observing the breath, right? So eventually I can relax into just uh, feeling the breath directly without the need for a feeler, much less a watcher, right? Just feeling. I'm relaxing more into just direct feeling, direct experience. And then I can further relax into just being the breath. 
just being the breath. And it's just like the, the breath is breathing itself and the body is breathing itself and you're just part of that. And there's really no sense of separation. So that's, that's moving into a more non-dual kind of approach to meditation and more allows us to more easily drop into the depth of our being. So it's kind of a trajectory from where we're initially, you know, using various techniques to direct the practice and some kind of self-regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a doing and then over time, less and less doing, less and less, or the self-regulation becomes more and more subtle until we begin to relax into and tap into this underlying pre-existing uh, beingness that's always there, this pure presence, this pure beingness, which is tangible. And it's always there. And we, we tap into that. And then it's more process of auto-regulation. We're not having to direct it. The body is auto-regulating itself into these profound states of awareness and beingness and pure presence. And so we're going from doing to being, right? So, and and it's by, in that way, we drop into the depth of our being and can have these experiences from which we begin to develop that unshakable confidence in our own innate goodness, what my first teacher called basic goodness, unconditional, primordial, innate goodness and wholeness, right? And so, you know, that, that's a very important trajectory. And then I have a model called neurosomatic mindfulness, where it's a neuroscience informed, trauma informed, deeply embodied approach, which is really designed to guide people much more quickly uh, into that because it always it takes practice. It always takes practice. But many of us, I know early in my meditation uh, path, you know, we're, we're trying to meditate from the shoulders up mostly, you know, we get distracted, we notice that we bounce back, we bounce, you know, we're chasing thoughts, coming back, chasing thoughts, coming back. And, and, you know, we can spend a long time doing that. And maybe eventually, if you sit enough, or you sit long sittings, you kind of wear out that discursive mind and start to have some meditative experiences. But it's much easier if we actually use the body to anchor us in nowness, right? And then we have some understanding of this kind of subtle journey from from directed self-regulation into auto-regulation into pure beingness. So, so that's kind of um, that journey. And, and I've been practicing meditation for more than 50 years. And during my time in prison, it was a real laboratory for that because, uh, uh, you know, I was practicing several hours a day for 14 years and even more on weekends sometimes and uh, practicing late at night when it was quiet at night in my cell and, and, uh, and then, you know, I continued that very intentional practice the rest of my life. And even what, right after I got out of prison, I taught at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, the same university I had graduated from before I went to prison. And uh, there I, I taught a lot of different kinds of classes, um, but I also had a kind of drop-in meditation class, which was for me kind of like a laboratory. And I was always experimenting with all these models uh, for about 10 years in that, in that weekly class with the students who came. And that's kind of where I evolved this this deeply embodied approach that I now call uh, neurosomatic mindfulness. Wow, full circle going back and teaching where you were studying. That's that's fantastic. So can you tell us what this bottom up and and the top down brain is, and how do people become fully engaged and awake through, you know, with their conscious, their heart mind, become conscious in their heart mind connections? What is this bottom up? top-down brain you talk about in your book. Yeah. Uh, you know, so many of us have heard of the idea of the triune brain, uh, Paul McLean's idea, which has been a little bit, you know, discredited, but it still has some validity to it. He thought of it like three separate brains, which they're not. The brain is one holistic, completely interconnected, interdependent enterprise. But there's still all these functional areas. People have probably heard of the reptilian brain, which is all about survival. 
there's the midbrain, which is about many things, but it's also where the amygdala are and, and where, you know, our fear-based responses get triggered. It's also where memory and language processing, emotional processing is. And then you have the neocortex, the, the neomammalian brain, which is the, you know, the smart part of our brain, the objective part of our brain, responsible for all of our higher cognitive abilities. So, but some some neuroscientists uh, sometimes talk about instead of the three-part brain, they'll talk about just the two-part brain. And they'll talk about the top-down brain, which is really uh, the part of the brain that manages the rest of the brain, and also the part that can be conscious, right? Where we're actually objectively, consciously making decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And then the bottom-up part of the brain, which literally the lower parts of the brain, is really like a, a vast supercomputer. And it's highly programmed. It gets starts getting programmed from birth forward. It's highly programmed. And, you, you know, uh, an interesting kind of uh, analogy here or descriptive to understand that the relationship between the two, you know, during a, the amount of time that it would take the top down brain to like decide what to have for lunch, right? A few minutes, look at a menu, decide what to have for lunch. How many processes can the bottom up brain do during that same time? Well, you might say hundreds or thousands. It's actually billions. Mm -hmm. It's a supercomputer. It's literally a supercomputer. And there's all kinds of wonderful programming in there, what allows us to walk and talk and function in life. And and uh, but there's some gnarly programming in there that we picked up along the way as well. Or, you know, the stuff that got passed down through our family lineage that our, our forebears hadn't quite worked out. They hand it on to us and say, good luck. Right. So, you know, and I think that's kind of our destiny in life is to take what we've received, improve on it, and hopefully pass on an improved version to those we influence, including our children. So um, so that's the distinction between the top-down brain, the kind of conscious brain, and the bottom-up brain. But all of that, I would still describe as the kind of body brain, the body brain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's kind of very much the encapsulated skull-encapsulated brain, which is thoroughly connected to the whole nervous system in the body. And there are other neural networks that we know today in the biome and the guts and also in the heart. Um, but it's still kind of the body brain. It's focused on, you know, uh, operating the body on all our sense perceptions, our, our cognitive abilities and so forth. But then I would say there's a, there's a vaster, you may not want to call it brain because brain is kind of pointing to physicality, but if, you know, and brain and mind are not the same thing. They often get equated. And certainly the, the brain is a major vehicle for consciousness in the mind, although that would be an east-west argument, which, which comes first, consciousness or, you know, the physical brain or consciousness. Western science would say, most Western science would say that consciousness is simply an epiphenomenon of the brain. And when you die, the lights go out and that's it. And Eastern sciences would say more, no, there's, there is consciousness independent of the human body. And actually mm -hmm. the human body is simply a manifestation of a deeper consciousness. Um, but at any rate, and, and some Western scientists might try to kind of say it's, it's both ends. Um, but at any rate, you know, when you think of our sense of self uh, to begin with, uh, uh, even if we have a, you know, not very egotistical self, we've done a lot of work and we're not really totally married to our that individuality in such a way, but we all still operate with some sense of self. We couldn't function. And that self really resides in a nested set of relationships. It's not encapsulated in the body. It, it resides in a nested set of relationships. And one way in which that becomes really clear is when we have serious losses in our life. And I've had quite a few. And, you know, the, the process of grieving can be so deep uh, because really, you know, our, our who we are, the fabric of our self-structure has been kind of ripped and uh, torn. And, uh, 
And, you know, without this person in my life, who am I? And we have to kind of reweave that sense of who we are in our place in the world. And that takes time. And that's really the process of grieving and integrating a loss. And uh, so, you know, you can also think of that in terms of mind. And with the current emerging field of interpersonal neurobiology led by Dan Siegel and others, where they're integrating lots of different scientific disciplines, including neuroscience, but also things like anthropology and linguistics and lots of different uh, 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 disciplines within the humanities and within the hard sciences. Um, the, you know, there's this idea that uh, we really, uh, even on a mind level, uh, we're, we're really an energetic system that's nested within other energetic systems, right? Our mind isn't encapsulated even within the skin of the body. The mind is also in this larger energetic field. And, uh, you know, and we have a lot of actually hard science, neuroscience to support that these days. And we all know about, you know, basic empathy and intuition and how we can sense things and we can feel others and all these kind of things. So the, the mind isn't limited to the, to the encapsulated uh, brain and the skull, right? Um, and so, and some of the qualities of this mind, the way we actualize, you know, the more we we're always connected to these larger energy systems that were part of these living systems that were part of, uh, um, we're always connected with the question, how much awareness do we have around that, right? How much consciousness? And then, you know, are we able to engage in a relational way in a very conscious way? And have our own, uh, in polyvagal terms, have our own social engagement systems online and operate with others in a way that invites them to have their social engagement systems online, which creates connection and psychological safety and intimacy and relationship and so forth. So, you know, that whole world of the interpersonal beingness, right? What Thich, the, the great Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh called interbeing, interbeing. Mm -hmm. that, that is this larger mind, what, what, you know, in the Buddhist tradition is sometimes called heart mind, uh, and uh, or bodhicitta, and um, so that that's what I talk about when I talk about the the heart mind. It's it's the more interpersonal mind, the mind of interbeing. Mm -hmm. I love the in the heart mind. How how do we wake up this awareness and to you know become radically responsible for this inner life? And what are some exercises or an exercise that you could share to? you know, enhance our understanding of this way of the being in the world and become more conscious. Is there an exercise that you, a short exercise that you could share or just, I know you shared a lot here, but. Um, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. You know, um, the interesting thing is that anything we can do to become more embodied, mm -hmm. right, more awake, and, and awakening to our innate capacity for introceptive awareness, right? Introception is a fancy word that stands for internal perception. We experience the world around us through extraception. It includes touch, external touch on the surface of the skin, sight, sound, smell, and taste. External perception or extraception. Then we have internal perception. Our entire body is a living organism and sensory all the way down to the bones. Even the hard white outer layer of the bones, the periosteum, even the marrow of the bones, all containing neuronal cells, all connected to the central nervous system, uh, as well as the musculature, you know, the connective tissue, the vital organs, the lymphatic system, the circulatory system, the glands, everything, all sensory. 
And it's more subtle because those internal perceptions travel to the brain through neural networks that are less myelinated, or in some cases not myelinated, which means they don't travel as fast or efficiently. So it's those sensations are more subtle. But we all this is how we experience pain or discomfort. If we're having a headache or we're having indigestion, you know that's interoception. Uh, unfortunately, absent discomfort, we usually ignore the internal landscape of the body. Right? We focus on extraoception, uh, external touch on the surface and actually goes to a highly myelinated network and goes directly to the brain. Uh, so it's a, it's, there are different neural pathways and how we experience this. But with practice, we can open to this internal field of sensate experience, interoception, and really over time become much more embodied, really alive in the body, you know, at home in our own skin, really feeling the body inside and out from head to toe. And this really grounds us in life. Like, in, and when the current neuroscience shows that Enhanced interoceptive awareness uh, heals trauma, deepens our resilience, increases our emotional intelligence and literacy, our capacity for emotion regulations are the most important things in terms of being able to, you know, navigate life in our relational field successfully. So the interesting thing is that the same neural networks that are involved in enhanced interoceptive awareness, embodiment and interoceptive awareness, are also neural networks that support connecting with others. So it turns out that the more deeply embodied we are, the more easily we make connections with others and develop you know, safety and intimacy and connection with others, right? So it's, it's all kind of the same work. Now, one exercise that I don't really suggest people do on, I mean, people could do this on their own, but um, I lead it in workshops a lot. And I've done it online quite a bit since the pandemic started, but it's a lot easier to do in person. But I do a lot of, in my workshops, I get people in pairs and do a lot of things, triads, pairs, small groups. But in pairs, I, I train them in something I usually call presencing, which is first becoming present to one's own body and mind in this deeply internalized way, both external and internal you know, developing this deep embodied presence and learning to navigate that and sense that and be curious about that. And then from there, turning to the relational field, using eye gazing with another person, sitting right across from another person, almost knee to knee, and engage in this process of eye gazing, uh, with it not scaring and it's not blurring out, but there's this kind of relaxed, open, receptive gaze. And, you know, initially there's some discomfort and some self-consciousness, but over time it just deepens and deepens. And but you don't lose track of yourself. You're not merging into a relational field. You're still very much embodied and aware of your own body, heart, mind, and you're intentionally, uh, voluntarily entering into this relational field of exchange and connection with another. And people are amazed that with a perfect stranger, they develop this profound level of intimacy and connectedness in a matter of minutes. So that's kind of an exercise that's usually more guided, right? That mm -hmm. I do. But there are some other exercises in the book, uh, the Radical Responsibility book, that can help people. Uh, with that work. That's wonderful. I did an exercise years ago, Fleet, where you sit, like you said, in front of the other person and you're, you're from your heart and that you're sending through, looking through to their eyes, which, you know, the connected to their soul, but you're sending love, pure love mm -hmm. yeah. and, and how people can start crying in that because they can feel it like the, the, the depth of that. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I direct it in that way, but more often I just let that arise spontaneously because if you give it enough time, it will. Uh, and uh, then people realize it's just it's, it's this kind of innate connectedness. But either mm -hmm. way, it can it can it can be quite profound, right? And you know, For sure. Um, you know, we now know a lot more today about how neural networks of the heart are connected to 
uh, other sense perceptions and a vision and and you know we're, we're just learning so much more about the inner landscape of the body and mind and how that connects to the external sense fields and then to our relational fields and our connection even to the natural world mm-hmm. let's let's uh dive into the neurobiology that you talked about as a, it's a basis for learning habit formation the thing about neurons you know that fire together wire together how can we have it we have good habits we have bad habits we have habits what we want to break how do we first of all break through those patterns that we don't want to you know have anymore we want to be conscious we want to live our life by design not default because of these habits big question i kind of that's my little yeah. chunker part of me fleet yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I think it's going to be fine to talk about good habits and bad habits, uh, you know, positive habits, negative habits. There, but there for me, really, more to the point, it's it's there's habits that service and habits that don't. Very real. Right? Yes, yes. And yes. Um, and most of the habits we developed at one time or another, you know, were in some way in service of something, often just to keep us safe, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But a lot of the habits and program we developed early in childhood, which we still rely on, uh, is not really serving us now, right? Mm-hmm. So when we recognize that we have habitual patterns that really aren't working for us, if we understand the science of habit formation, then there's a lot we can do to really change those habits. And there's so many wonderful books now out, uh, you know, um, uh, B.J. Fogg's book, Tiny Habits, I think. And, uh, you know, there's books uh, about what's called habit stacking. And and there's there's a lot of one of S.J. Scott's books. And, and uh, I think it's James Clear's books and there's a lot of wonderful books uh, around the science of habit formation. Uh, and Charles Duhigg wrote, I think, the, the first book really on the science of habit formation. But the one really simple thing is to understand something called the habit loop. So almost all habits have something that triggers the habit, the stimulus or the cue. And then there's a behavior and then there's a reward. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so. Uh, that gets repeated enough and it becomes actually ingrained as a neural pathway in the brain. And we tend to just go there automatically. The cue happens, boom, we go into the behavior, we get the reward. So um, the uh, one uh, great strategy for changing a habit that is no longer serving us is there's always going to be that cue, whatever it is. If we can replace the behavior that's not leading to a good outcome with a different behavior that will still produce a war, a reward, but a better outcome it can be very easy then to, with practice, just to change that habit, to replace it. Now, the old neural networks are never going to go away, which is why you can backslide. But if you really work and the new ones become robust enough, you can depend on them. Now, I'll give you an example. For example, probably most of us had that experience when we're trying to work, we're trying to read a book, we're focusing, maybe we're doing some work in the office or at a computer or something. And then suddenly we just kind of hit that wall of fatigue or brain fog. So what many of us would do then, we'd reach for a cup of coffee or we'd reach for, you know, a so-called energy snack, which actually may have a lot of sugar in it. And, you know, we'll then get the reward, right? Or the brain fog will clear, we'll get the clarity, we can we can continue working. Uh, but the problem is later then there's the crash, right? The caffeine crash or the sugar crash. And then we're going to we're going to be trapped in that cycle and go around and around and maybe drinking more caffeine than is good for us or maybe eating more snacks than are good for us, leading to weight issues and all the rest of it. So let's say we want to change that. And this is something I've much personally done. So speaking from experience here. So we experience that that kind of fatigue brain fog coming on. Instead of grabbing the coffee, again, there's nothing wrong with having a cup. I have my morning coffee or tea. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, instead of grabbing for more caffeine or for some kind of, you know, energy snack, um, uh, instead, what I decided to do was stand up, 
uh, go get a glass, another glass, I drink a lot of water, but go get another glass of water, drink a full glass of water, uh, do some deep breathing and do some stretching. And then I sit back down. My energy is completely renewed. The brain fog is cleared. I'm able to go back to work. Same reward, different behavior, same reward, same cue, same reward, different behavior. And now I don't have the caffeine crash or the sugar crash or, you know, the weight issues or any of that, right? So that's just a simple example of how we can change a habit by uh, working with that same habit loop of, of cue or trigger behavior reward and simply inserting a new behavior. Now, some other strategies, you know, that some of these books I, I reference have lots of great things. So the idea of t- tiny habits is starting off with really little micro habits, right? They're much easier to establish, right? So really break it down into tiny micro habits. And then the phenomena of, uh, you know, even let's say we want to get in shape and I'm, oh, I'm going to get to where I can do 50 push-ups, right? Well, start off one push-up, make a commitment to do one push-up a day. Pretty quickly, you won't be able to stop at one push-up. You'll be doing three, and then you'll be doing five, right? But you start small. Um, so tiny habits. And then the idea of habit stacking is once we have uh, an anchored habit, whether it's a new one we created or one that was pre-existing, we can then add habits to that in a chain of habits that becomes a routine. So, for example, you know, maybe every morning we get up and brush our teeth. Well, what's the next thing we do? You know, maybe there's something new. Maybe we maybe we're not much of a flosser. So from now on, I'm going to brush. Then I'm going to floss, right? Or you know, something else. Uh, maybe we get home uh, and we usually come in. We hang up the coat or hat. We put the keys in a basket by the door. And then what do we do? Well, maybe we're wanting to you know get a little more conscious around the quality of our relationship. So we develop the habit as soon as we put the keys in the basket. Instead of going over and picking up the newspaper or plopping on the couch or turning on the TV. We go over and greet our partner, our spouse, and ask them how their day has been, right? Mm-hmm. So we take a pre-existing habit and add to that another habit. Now, I'll give you one more example of how you can build up a whole routine. So I have this whole morning routine I do that I built up over, well, it's really refined it over a couple of years, but initially built it over several months. Um, so I wake up and, uh, you know, just take a moment to kind of lie there and Okay, I'm here. I'm alive. It's a new day. Feel some gratitude for that. And then I go into some uh, physical exercise right there in bed. I do a whole series of crunches and different kinds of crunches. And I do spinal twists. And then I do some other uh, stretch, different kinds of stretches. And that whole routine probably takes me about, uh, you know, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. And and then I, I go into a half bridge pose and I do this rapid breathing that completely wakes up my system. It's also good for the core. Then I swing my sides over the, my feet over the side of the bed. I sit on the side of the bed and I do some more breathing, some some very specific uh, breath work. Uh, then I get up and uh, uh, if I have time, sometimes my time varies, but if I have time, I have another kind of module that I do, which is I go get down on the floor and I do a, another series of yoga stretches and I do uh, push-ups and so forth. Uh, and then I'll get up and then sometimes do some squats and so forth. Then I head in, do my shower, do the whole bathroom uh, thing. And then I head in and uh, to the meditation room, get some tea, go into the meditation room, meet my wife, Sophie, in there, and generally do an hour to an hour and a half of meditation, then come down, create a really nutritious breakfast, enjoy that with my wife, and then it's time to start my day. So I have two hours there of highly scripted. That It's really hard for me to change it. It has such momentum. And I built it up one habit at a time. So it became a routine. Now, just to, just to be kind of real and human about this. So 
my wife and I uh, decided to uh, to get a puppy. We both have had dogs <laughs> before in our life, several dogs, but we haven't had. I had my last lab died a couple years ago. And I really, really missed him. So we decided to get a puppy, right? And and so we we welcomed this brand new being into our life back in March, and it completely disrupted everything. You know, I'm down there sleeping on the kitchen floor, you know, on, on a blow up bed, you know, keeping the uh, puppy company through the night for the first <laughs> for ten days, and and uh, my wife took a few nights, and and eventually started sleeping through the night. But then, so early in the morning, getting up to take him out to pee, and then at breakfast, you know, it's completely disrupted our whole my wife's routine, my routine, just out the window, right? And so, but, you know, I wasn't going to, you know, I realized, okay, we're going to have to surrender this for a while. And, you know, this is a new delight in our lives. And, you know, there were several times for a couple of months, my wife and I looked at each other and go, what were we thinking? Right. But, but at the same time, mixed with that was all the love and the joy of this new being in our life and a beautiful, just gorgeous uh, golden doodle that we're completely in love with named Kiku. So, but, you know, I got to get back on the, on, on, you know, on the saddle here. So we just really worked in developing new routines, trading off, figure out how sometimes we go up to the meditation hall and practice. Sometimes we, we do it on our own down in the kitchen area and we don't practice together that much anymore. sometimes on weekends, but, but we've worked out a routine. So both of us can uh, have now gotten back into a rhythm of doing all our health and wellness uh, disciplines and doing our meditation practice. And we've reestablished our routine. It's just taken some work. So, you know, life disruptions happen and you have to, you have to reconfigure it, but you build it up one habit at a time, and then you build these routines that have a lot of momentum and you can really depend on them. You know, especially I really believe in that morning routine. You know, some people talk about it. I think Tony Robbins calls it the hour power. And, uh, uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Robin Sharma talks about it. He has another term for it. And my my teacher called it your daily ceremony. Um, you know, and so it's a morning ritual regimen ceremony, and it's what you do. And, and to me, it's foundational to the quality of our day and the quality of our life. So that's the time to do it in the morning. And I really believe in that. Uh, and that's the way you build it up is by understanding how habits work. Also, you know, the brain, another important thing to realize is the brain is always economizing. You know, I mean, if the brain had to like deal with all the input that's coming in and make all, you know, it, it, smoke would start coming out of our ears. So the brain's always looking for shortcuts. It's always looking for shortcuts. It's always looking to economize. It's always looking for the easiest way through. And so we need to remember that. So, you know, when we're trying to establish new habits, we need to make it easy, right? We need to make it easy. So, you know, for example, if, you know, for me, I want to work out, you know, uh, now I have all the routines I do in the morning, but I also want to do other kind of weightlifting exercises and so forth and at least three times a week. Well, if I have to drive and go to a gym, it's just, you know, there's going to be a million times I'll find that won't work. Or, you know, some people it works, but it, they have a gym close to home and maybe that goes out of business. Now it's 20 minutes away and the routine goes out the window. So I built my own gym at home because, you know, then I know I'm going to do it. Or another example is, uh, you know, wanting to not look at your cell phone first thing in the morning. Right. But you use yourself like I do use your cell phone for alarm clock. Right. And you have it up there in the bedroom. You know, well, it's really tough not to fall into that addictive impulse to go check your email or check social media mm-hmm. or wherever it is. Well, if you want to make it easy on yourself, leave the phone downstairs. Right. So when we're trying to create new habits, we need to remember the brain is always economizing and we need to make it as easy as possible to develop that new habit. Mm-hmm. So, oh, OK, well. Thank you so much. There's going to be a gift below from you. We'll just put that in surprise from Fleet. Um, and, and, and thank you so much, Fleet, from sharing from your heart and soul, your wisdom, 
on becoming an unstoppable force for good. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you very much, Moira. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Heart Soul Wisdom Podcast with Moira Sutton. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please join our community at moirasutton.com and continue the discussion on our Facebook page, Create the Life You Love. You will be part of a global movement connecting with other heart-centered people who are consciously creating the life they love on their own terms. Together, we can raise our consciousness for the greater good of humanity and for our planet.